Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest podcast. And this is a talk I gave at one of the ER meetings, and it's the evaluation of hematuria. Often we speak about looking at renal masses or inflammatory disease. This one focuses and th makes us think about things from the hematuria perspective. When you look at the most common presentations in the ER, the most common diagnoses were indeed renal colic and intestinal obstruction. We know how valuable CT is in this scenario, both in terms of making the correct diagnosis and the correct management plan. But again, renal colic is at the top of your list. There was an article uh, talking about physician decision-making in the ER setting. And CT indeed was very important in managing patients correctly. And that's particularly important, again, with renal colic and hematuria being common presentations. You can see in this multi-site uh, article that physicians frequently change their lead diagnosis in abdominal pain, as well as chest pain and headache. Their confidence increased and admission decisions indeed increased. And this article goes on to say, and this article still impressed, that physicians' confidence also increased. Their certainty increased. And the conclusion would have been for common referrals uh, for CT in the emergency setting, physicians' diagnosis and admission decisions change after CT with diagnostic uncertainty alleviated. And making the point that perhaps we are indeed ordering studies correctly. There's always this saying that doctors are ordering too many studies or they're ordering the wrong studies. Well, perhaps this indeed is not the case when you look at it carefully. And in that article, they have some very nice charts really showing you the value of CT. So CT is very valuable in the renal colic patient as well as, of course, other areas. But so hematuria, renal colic is really the study to do. Now, if I use the term hematuria and I ask you what is hematuria, well, it's defined as the presence of red blood cells in the urine. When visible to the patient, it's termed gross hematuria. When it's microscopic, then it's detected by the dipstick method or by a microscopic examination of the urinary sediment. Now, when you look at some more definitions for microscopic hematuria, it's three or more red blood cells per high-powered field. What's important to recognize is the difference between microscopic and macroscopic hematuria in terms of outcomes. In patients with microscopic hematuria, it's uncommon to find a malignancy, even in older patients. In younger patients, it's extremely uncommon. Bladder cancer were probably the most common, but it's still going to be very uncommon. However, when you have macroscopic hematuria, then your risk of tumor is much higher up to one-third almost, and even in patients under age 40 where renal tumors are rare and bladder tumors are rare, still 10% of the time you're going to find something very, very critical. Now, if you go back and look at some of the articles, this article by Hicks talking about macroscopic hematuria in the ER setting spoke about that um, when you do have macroscopic hematuria, there's a high yield for diagnostic uh, for urologic malignancies. 30% of patients presenting with painless hematuria are found to have a malignancy. The majority of these patients can be managed in the outpatient setting. Hicks goes on to also say that in men over age 60, positive predictive value of macroscopic hematuria for malignancy is 
for women of the same age, it's a bit over 8%. In terms of the need for follow-up investigation, a single episode of hematuria is equally important as recurrent episodes. So one of the things these articles do make the point is that if you find hematuria, it's not necessarily an emergency in the ER setting. You might get a CT scan and then at that point discharge the patient and have them worked up on the outside. So again, it depends on the clinical scenario. Now, if you look at hematuria as a term and as an etiology, there are so many causes of hematuria. You could think of causes like IgA nephropathy or thin glomerular basement membrane disease or Alport syndrome. Those are not exactly the common causes of hematuria, but they're the common causes of glomerular hematuria. Now, for non-glomerular hematuria, which is the most common thing, now we think about stone disease, polynephritis, renal cell carcinoma, transitional, obstruction, benign hematuria. For the lower tract, we talk about cystitis or BPH. We talk about strenuous exercise leading to hematuria. We talk about lower uh, tract TCC. We talk about spurious hematuria, instrumentation as well as benign hematuria. Now, when you start looking at the differential diagnosis of macroscopic hematuria, it is indeed extensive. And again, we know it could be anywhere from a benign process like stone disease to a malignancy to anything in between from vascular malformations to hemorrhagic cystitis to trauma and the like. When you look at the role of CT in the evaluation of hematuria, you can see from the ACR propanus committee criteria that it indeed rates highest. It rates a nine, which is about as high as you can get. So again, the appropriateness of the study is indeed high. Now let's take a look for a second about renal calculi. And renal calculi is something we do a lot in the ER setting. We all do a lots of non-contrast scans for renal calculi. Lifetime risk for urinary calculus disease is 12% for men, 6% for women. Risk factors include a personal family history of stones, urinary tract abnormality, obesity, and metabolic disorders. The incidence for stone disease is highest in warm regions and during the summer months because of the issue with dehydration. Now, when you speak about stone disease, there are always a few questions. When is imaging needed in the evaluation of suspected stone disease? What protocol do you use? What are the key findings on CT for patient management? And when do you need to do contrast-enhanced scans? Well, the American American Urologic Association, the ACR, uh, recommend non-contrast scans for initial presentation of fang pain where you're thinking about stone disease. Just do a non-contrast CT. This indeed works very, very nicely. You can see the sensitivity and accuracy of CT is by far greatest in the high 90% range. We often ask the question, if you see a stone, will it pass? It depends on size and location. Spontaneous passage of 48% for proximal versus 75% for distal calculus. And again, the percentages will change. The smaller the stone, the more likely it is to pass. And when you get larger stones, when it gets to nine millimeters or so, the likelihood is under 20%. Now, there was a good article by Eisner made the point, what does a clinician need to know? Presence or absence of stones, their location, the number of stones, 
their diameter, and perhaps secondary findings, including polynephritis. Now, if you look and you say, where is the obstruction site? We talk about three different levels, proximally, mid, or distal. And that translates into the uh, UPJ, the pelvic brim, and the UV junction. Now, in the same article, um, Eisner notes that um, one of the key things with CT is that it allows you to evaluate other urinary and extraurinary tract abnormalities that may be contributing to the symptoms of acute flank pain. And again, you want to be careful that the patient's presentation is not suspected stones, but you end up missing a renal cell carcinoma. This is probably the real reason for the patient's symptoms. Now, can you miss stones on CT? I guess you can miss something on CT if you're not careful. 99% of stones can be detected because they're calcium-based. 1% of stones can be missed simply by looking for them because they're pure matrix stones. Now, it's important to recognize, of course, if the, if the patient moves, if these sections are too thick or too far apart, anybody can miss the presence of a stone. And here's just a nice example, stone in the proximal left ureter. Again, doing the reconstruction is tracking the ureter makes it very easy to find uh, the presence of stones. Now, from a protocol perspective, if I ask you, when is a contrast scan needed? Well, if you see unilateral stranding and enlargement of the kidney and there are risk factors maybe for infarct or vein thrombosis, that would be a cause. When you have perirenal fluid collections, when you see a mass, and this may simply be just a red herring. You need to evaluate the mass. You need to give IV contrast. And again, unexplained hematuria. You need to have IV contrast. Um, very, very important to really not be uh, fooled to getting non-contrast scans on every patient. Non-contrast studies are good for detecting stone disease, but if you have persistent hematuria and the stone study is negative, you really have to go forward and get a quality examination. Now, once we make that decision to give contrast, there are many decisions that will have to go into place. The volume of contrast, the rate of injection, the phase or phases we need to have, and post-processing. And a good article by Johnson on this topic made the point that it's very critical to really come up with good protocols for looking at the kidney. There are many pitfalls, but we can avoid the pitfalls if we're careful. Now, one thing I always like to think about is the different phases and why we use them and what their advantages are. So I spoke about stone disease and non-contrast CT. Obviously, for detecting of stones, non-contrast CT works well. The other place where non-contrast CT is very valuable is in this example where the patient has a renal lesion that's 86 Hounsfield units. That means this lesion is over 99% likely to be a high-density renal cyst doing nothing else. Now, if you don't have non-contrast CT, if you only had a contrast scan, you can't distinguish between a high-density renal cyst and a mildly vascular renal cell carcinoma. There are several rules why non-contrast CT works well. This article by Johnish, homogeneous renal mass, as in the case I showed you, measuring over 70 Hounsfield units, has a uh, greater than 99.9% .9 of being a high-density renal cyst on a non-contrast study. And again, remember the case I showed you before. Here it is on arterial phase, still measures 94. On the delayed phase, measures in the 80s. And you can see it washes out, it's just minimal enhancement. 
and that's good for a high-density renal cyst. Or this case, you can see a mass left kidney. You can think about a tumor. It kind of looks like it's bulging out. Might it be a tumor? Here is the sagittal views. When you give IV contrast, you can see the lesion does not enhance. It remains exactly the same, the same size. It remains the same density. And that's a very classic appearance of a high-density renal cyst. So the non-contrast scans really give us that information. If I only had the arterial phase or delayed phase, I can make a mistake. So non-contrast is indeed very, very valuable. Um, another article that followed the one I showed you was by O'Connor that made the point also about the importance of non-contrast CT in triaging patients. A renal mass containing fat with attenuation value under 20 or over 70, 95 plus percent, probably 99 percent, are going to be benign, as long as there's no septations or nodules present. And they made the point that lesions between 20 and 70 Hounsfield units, those are the ones on non-contrast that become important to us. Now, it's also important to make the point that if lesions have fat within them, that's easy. Here's a lesion left kidney. It has fat, measures minus 90. There's no issue. It's a myelolipoma. But I do make the point, and many people make the point, that sometimes you have angiomyolipomas that have minimal fat. You can see that little dot of fat. And yes, theoretically, you can see fat in a patient with renal cell carcinoma, but that's pretty rare, and the tumor is very aggressive in that point. Here's an incidental lesion from the axials, several points of fat being present. This is classic for, for a renal uh, angiomyolipoma. It's important to remember that angiomyolipomas do not need to be entirely made of fat. Even a small amount of fat is going to allow you to make the diagnosis. Now, staying with the numbers, this article by Pooler looked at things from a little different perspective, and however, again found 20 to 70 Hounsfield units being the danger zone where lesions outside these numbers were going to be benign. The average maximum unenhanced attenuation for all lesions was 39, and the average minimum was 27 if you looked only at renal cell carcinomas. So you can see renal cells have that sweet spot of around 40, but if you stay under 20 over 70, you're going to be dealing with most likely a benign cyst. Pooler goes on to say that indeterminate renal lesions on unenhanced CT contain regions of interest between 20 and 70. That's the danger zone. That's the area you have to be careful. And you can see here, just a simple example, the patient has a mass non-contrast study on the um, medial aspect of the upper third of the left kidney. Faint calcification, that always bothers me. It's higher density. It's not under 20. It's in the 40s. You can see it again here. You give IV contrast. It's not the most vascular lesion in the world, but it's a papillary renal cell carcinoma. It's solid. It does enhance. You can see it very nicely as I draw the circles around it. Or look at some of the 3D images from both the cortical medullary phase as well as the venous phase. So again, you need to be very careful, but the non-contrast scans are critical in this regard. Now, I spoke to you before about the importance of hematuria, the importance of microscopic versus macroscopic, and I mentioned that it's one of the critical things when you speak about uh, renal cell carcinoma. Uh, it's one of the things that's critical in evaluating patients. 
it's not always going to be the case. Now remember, most renal lesions are picked up by serendipity, two-thirds, and the patients are typically asymptomatic. However, when you pick up hematuria, then you need to be really careful. Now one of the things that's been challenging for us is that our ability to detect renal lesions has increased substantially with better scanners, but it's not really changed all that much our ability to determine benign versus malignant. Remember about 25% of renal tumors or renal masses under three sodomies removed are indeed benign. So we do have some challenges. Now, one way of looking at the challenge is looking at the functional aspects of imaging the kidney, what happens once you give contrast, and what indeed changes. And for that, you're gonna to have to come back in 15 minutes after we take our coffee break. I'll be right back.